0: Warning! The following episode contains mature subject matters, mentions of immigrant culture, and a Brazilian host with the energy of a chaotic vampire. Listener discretion is advised você só foda na cama de esculacho na sala ou no quarto no beco ou no carro eu eu sou sinistro melhor que seu marido esculacho seu amigo no escuro eu sou perigo salador um cara All right so here with me today is a really really fun really talented really polemic, polemic, I don't think polemic is a word in English, polemic is a word in Portuguese, controversial, I'm gonna say controversial, <laughs> a really controversial comedian, producer, host in Toronto, his name is Dinesh War, and um, I'm going to bring him up right now, hello Dinesh, thank you so much for joining me,
1: I'm happy to be here, yeah. um, I forgot, super sweaty and thirsty most of the time, I <laughs> don't drink water, so it's all iced coffee all the time. So the my emotional is,
0: support iced coffee. Yeah, my
1: emotional support, iced coffee. <laughs> my back better than therapy.
0: It is, it is. <laughs> so um before we get into the interview, uh, I-, I wanted to ask you, do you remember the first time we met? We? The yes. two of us?
1: Uh hmm, I imagine at a show somewhere. I don't I, I don't actually
0: remember. It was actually at um, one of Ana Maria's house parties.
1: Oh, when we were recording shows, it, yeah, like, for right, 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 right.
0: Five, yeah. I
1: remember that. Yeah, that was actually that was like a Twitch show, right? And yeah. we were streaming from a house, and everybody was performing a few minutes in in her living room.
0: It was the twenty four hour stream. I the believe. The twenty four
1: hour apartment comedy festival. Yeah, Ana Maria always has amazing ideas.
0: I know, I know. <laughs> it's so funny because my very first introduction to you as a person mm. was that first I like you were complaining about cops, then you offered people weed, and then yeah. you talked shit about, um, I think, the governor. But
1: <laughs> the governor. we don't have a governor, we have a premier. That does sound yeah. like me. That, yeah. <laughs>
0: I knew it was a politician. You were talking shit about, and that was my very first introduction to you.
1: <laughs> okay, you got the authentic experience. Then that's pretty much those are my three things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Danesh, for the people who don't know you, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal background?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, personal history, you know, started as. Just random stardust, 14 billion years ago at the Big Bang, and then, uh, then at some point, it took human form. Uh, that would it, you know, it was in Russia. I grew up in Moscow. You know, mm-hmm. I bounced around the world a little bit for uh, not happy reasons, mostly running away from governments, running away from abusive parents, that sort of thing. We're a family of runaways, and I've been here in Canada about almost 20 years now. You know, Ooh. we got here as like like normal immigrants you know no work visa no nothing like that you mm-hmm. had to, to come to live here which is like a
0: and you came ass. with your family or by yourself
1: no with my family my mom my stepdad and my younger brother and mm-hmm. uh yeah then I started comedy eventually because I, I worked here I came here started working saved up some money to go to college uh I basically partied for two years I lived on campus at York University so you know I was not serious about my education <laughs> mm-hmm. I <laughs> I actually, at the end of two years, I had spent like a whole lot of the money, I, which I had worked to save for college, but I got jaded with the experience because at the end of two years, I'd gone to maybe less than one third of my classes, maybe 20% of my classes. And I still had a straight A average. And I, all I did was party in my dorm like two years in a row. So I kind of got jaded with that. And I went back to work because I thought this is pointless I can do this quite literally in my sleep mm-hmm. I don't need to pay $20,000 to have a great time in North York Ontario you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so like yeah so I went back to work got super bored with that I get bored by everything very quickly mm-hmm. um, and then I found stand-up okay I didn't find stand-up I'd been a huge fan of stand-up comedy since I was pretty young
0: stand-up yeah. found you yeah, well, if I'm being perfectly
1: honest, an ex-girlfriend of mine started doing stand-up and I was like, I'm not going to let her win the breakup.
0: <laughs>
1: are you kidding me? That is 100% true. <laughs> and so now here we are doing this podcast 12 years uh-huh. later.
0: That's crazy. So so um, talking about your pipeline within comedy, mm. did you know you wanted to produce shows right away or was it a process of realization?
1: Pretty early, actually. I remember very clearly because I started, uh, you know, I've been doing stand-up on and off for a while. But I fully started, like, quite literally when my ex started to do it. doing it, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do it too. Fuck you. Well, not really. She's great. We're still mm-hmm. friends and all that. She's married to a woman now. And uh, we, uh, you know, I started doing stand-up uh, on a regular basis, the way, you know, you do, like, you go to mics, you go to weekend shows, you practice, you write. Around It was actually spring of 2011 when I started. And 2011, if you recall, was around the... It was the same time as the whole Occupy movement was happening.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I was actually spending a lot of my time... and Occupy Toronto was already a thing by then. So I was spending a lot of time down by the encampments and the protests and all that. And while at the same time, you know, starting up my comedy career, right? I was doing shows, open mics, trying to get on weekends. And very, very quickly, about a couple of months in, I realized that I don't like not having my own like environment in comedy because you do other people's shows you're you're kind of doing their version of what they think comedy is right and it just so happens that since I was talking with the Occupy people I started producing shows for them which we would live stream to every Occupy camp around the world and this was before live streaming was actually popular we're talking about 2011 this is I'm pretty sure Twitch wasn't around I think it was still called Justin TV or mm-hmm.
0: something.
1: Uh, and nobody else in comedy was doing that. So I was doing shows, comedy shows within like a protest. So we had some, we would have several hundred people from Occupy Toronto. And then we would have thousands of people watching in Korea, in Barcelona, New York. Pretty much, I think we had like 15 different camps watching every show. And I remember thinking, wow, I when I do this, when I put on the show and I pick my lineups, which I was terrible at because I didn't know anybody. So mm-hmm. I was just kind of like finding people, other amateur comics. But I enjoyed that process of putting on a show as opposed to only doing a set as part of a show because when you produce a show you get to i mean i would post do sets all of that still do to this day but i would also you know curate them with a very very specific idea in mind you know i wanted people not like the audience not to get bored by a show like i'm a political guy you know as you know but that doesn't mean the whole show has to be like me you know so I, you know, I, I would I would choose people who have different styles, maybe one-liners, storytellers, dark comedy, clean comedy, people who talk about relationships versus people who only talk about work, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd put all them together, you know, mix and match. And that's where I learned is very early on in that during that period, 2011, 2012, um, until Occupy dissolved, basically. And then I translated all of my uh, newfound skills into, like, clubs and uh, starting up shows at various bars, as we do, Yeah. Right? So that was kind of like, like, I found out pretty early on that I want to do it. And based on my work history, like right at that time, I had a day job still. You know, I ran my own department. I was like the manager of my own department at this uh, data analytics firm, basically. So, you know, I've uh, had enough enough experience knowing how to put things together and execute. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do the same thing I do at work, but do it here. And, you know, that's basically how it started.
0: So... So, for instance, hmm. how long into your comedy career did it take you for for you to quit a day job and just do this?
1: Oh, good question. Uh, I quit my day job in 2014. Mm-hmm. So, that would have been three years into comedy. But that's not typical because I'm going to just come out and say it. I was also a weed dealer, a very successful
0: <laughs>
1: weed dealer for 15 years. I had my day job. I was selling weed, and then I was doing comedy pretty much for a long time, like, concurrently. Uh, When I quit my day job, it's because um, the weed side of my business blew up. So, Mm -hmm. in general, any Canadian comedian, any comedian has to have a day job until comedy can pay the bills. So, for me, truly, comedy itself started paying the bills around pandemic times, actually, right after
0: 2020. Uh, It actually had a
1: very, for me personally, it had a, like, it boosted my career a lot. Because, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into all that yet, but just so you know, like, I was able to quit selling weed as well about three years ago. So I've been fully, like, a professional comedian making money only from my comedy skills, whether it's performing, producing, or writing, since 2020. So that would be, that means it was nine years it took me to be fully 100% independent in comedy.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And if you were to meet somebody who is on their first year of comedy today and mm-hmm. they were also interested in becoming a self-employed producer, what would be your go-to advice for this person?
1: My go-to advice is always the same. It's, uh, it's hard to write jokes or produce shows when you're worried about rent. So number one, make sure you have a, a straightforward, ideally a straightforward day job that takes care of your bills. Because producing shows also requires money. That's just how it is. Uh, In live comedy in particular, any kind of live event, you put put out a lot of money up front. You have to pay the venue first before the show even starts, usually months ahead. You have to have money for graphics, for posters, for marketing, to pay your comedians and all that. There's a lot of upfront costs. And then the money from the show comes to you weeks later. You know, you can't do that by just crashing on people's couches and be like the romanticized version of a comedian that a lot of people have, because the stress itself is a very big factor. So the first thing I say, make sure you have an income stream that is not dependent on comedy that you can rely on until you can depend on comedy. Number one yeah. thing, no matter what. Without that, you got nothing. You will burn out in like a year, 18 months tops. I have seen it happen over and over and over again.
0: Yeah yeah um let me let me ask you this then if Hmm. if this producer within their first year of comedy was trying to get their expectations right right um what would you say is an average you know upfront money that they should plan on spending if they wanted to put like a nice show
1: well a nice show to be honest most of your expenses as a producer Uh, are at least the way i run things is in your advertising and marketing right Mm -hmm. Now this is assuming that you're doing uh, you're putting on shows in theaters or like comedy clubs that have more than 100 150 seats every on a regular basis you know there are lots of micro clubs as well in the city anywhere from 30 to 50 seats Mm -hmm. and those are easier to easier to get around you can fill them with social, without even spending money on ads, mostly by social media and postering and just talking about it a lot, you can get 30 people out, maybe 30 to 50 people out once a month doing that. But once you scale up and you're talking about hundreds of, which is what you want to do, you want to play bigger uh, stages, you want to have access to the better clubs. The whole reason, which is what I did, I, I proved myself in smaller spaces till the clubs could trust me with their rooms on a regular basis. It took over a decade me to get to this point like right now i sell about 600 tickets a month every month i have to Uh, otherwise like all my expenses are out and nothing is coming in right
0: yeah so uh
1: what i recommend usually is start small figure out what your scale is what your math is but make sure you understand that you will need to spend a couple hundred dollars per show minimum like i'm talking about at the minimum a couple hundred dollars per show on advertising uh if you want like a sustainable uh ongoing uh kind of situation right because we all know this when we first start our friends come out our families come out to watch us and your rooms are full but then it dries up because people just that's just how it is most people will come to a comedy show once a year if that right so you need to then start pulling from just the general population who doesn't know you if you're one year in literally not even comedians know you Uh Right. So a lot of that, if you have a good sense of like, if you have a good identity, if you have a good concept, if you're a good comedian, like all the things that people will respond to at the show, you can build on top of that. But initially you kind of have to brute force hack it and just get your posters in front of eyeballs as as often as possible and uh, as frequently as possible. So you need, aside from venue, money to rent the venue you'll need you know if you have like let's say on a modest side if you're advertising for a show you will need at least two three work two three weeks worth of ad advertising money you know, mm-hmm. you can't just suddenly have an ad running three days before a show people have already made their plans you know yeah you kind of need to catch people early so you're talking about i would say two three hundred bucks advertising couple hundred bucks for venue fees a couple hundred bucks for your comedians and if you're lucky, you'll break even. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky, and it's you know it's not a deterrent. Just just to cap all, that off, just in general business terms, uh, the first few years of any project, you should focus on making sure it's executed successfully, even if it's not making money. It's called the growth phase or the investment phase of every business. You lose money initially because it's more important for you to do well with your customers than for you to make a profit. Right. And then once you've acquired customers, once you've acquired loyalty, once people are familiar with you and your brand and they're like, oh, this person puts on good shows, you end up having to spend less money on advertising, less money to get people in because people will naturally go in. And then you start, you know, like actually turning a profit.
0: Mm-hmm. So like,
1: my advice to anybody in the first year is it's OK if you're not making money off of it, but it's not OK if your shows are poor. Your shows have to pop. You have to make sure that when people come to see you, they have a good time. And that usually means a lot of upfront effort, with financial energy and all that. So just be okay with it and make your peace with it.
0: And for a person who has Mm -hmm. been doing comedy for, say, two, three years, Mm -hmm. they want to take their producing to another level and they want to start getting sponsors or or pitches like that. Where would you suggest they start?
1: Uh, I would, you know how we say it, write what you know. So it's the same with your industry. Like if it depends on what type of comedian you are, right? So if you're someone who talks a lot about relationships, talk to people in that industry, businesses in that industry. It could be anything from sex toys to like furniture and beddings, you know. Uh, You know, like me, myself, you know, I do a lot of political, uh, you know, comedy and all that. So I tend to talk to you know, media companies, you know, journalists, things of that nature, I try to get, I try to get sponsorships from people who are interested in what I'm talking about, right? So there's not really one size fits all. See what you talk about, like you as a comedian know what your niche is, what your interests are, what your bias is, and identify what businesses are related to that, because they're the, because your pitch is we have the same customers, you as a business and me as a comedian, we're talking to the same people, let's work together, you know, so, That's what I would
0: recommend in terms of sponsorships. That's very good advice. So moving on, Mm -hmm. now that we know a lot of your background as a producer, I would like us to talk about um, your what I see as the most prominent Dinesh production (laughs) around Toronto, which is Your Hood's a Joke. Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for the people who have never even heard of Your Hood's a Joke, why don't you describe the premise of the show a little bit?
1: Oh, uh, sure. It's racism, the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's the short way of saying it. The long way of saying it is it's a roast battle. We got pairs of comedians, they come up, they roast each other. People are familiar with that from the TV show. You know, it's insult comedy, essentially. It's like a yo mama is so-and-so, and then yo mama is so-and-so. But instead of doing it on a personal level, we do it on a territorial level. You know, and we try to uh, pit fights that are historically important, or even just important to people in the area. Like, in... and. For, if you, for those who are not aware, you know, this show we started in, or I started in 2013. It was the same year as Roast Battle started. It's been uh, basically we're at our one-year anniversary, no, sorry, 10-year anniversary now uh, this month, June 30th at Yuck Yucks. And um, back then, this was a very novel concept. You know, we're talking about 2013. This is peak cancel culture. Let's use that term. Let's say, you you know, like people were very, very eager to find a reason behind people's jokes, Right. This is obviously a lot of it was, um, how would I say, an overcorrection that started from a good place, like started from a place of equity and all that. Yeah. So for 20, for that time period, uh, a roast based show was not what people wanted, which is why I started doing it. Because I'm like, OK, nobody else is going to do it. I might as well be the first. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that people around the world hate their neighbors. Everybody has a joke about, <laughs> you, know, you know, the next town, the next neighborhood, the next country. And so I was able to spin it off and franchise it around the world. Like the show now plays. There's a Johan the Joke in Tokyo, in LA, New York. We're expanding to Amsterdam and Barcelona. We've done it. uh, We actually do it regularly in Winnipeg, in British Columbia. Uh, Because no matter where you're at, you've got an opinion on why the people two blocks down for you are absolute degenerates. You know, it's just, it's based on like all sports is based on this. So it's the same idea, but with jokes, you know, and, uh, it's a no-holds-barred show. It's very dark humor. You know, we'll we'll say things that are true but not cool to say, and often for especially for like racialized people like you or me, we often want to say certain things about our communities, but, but we can't because it feeds the uh, racists, the actual real racists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't talk about, for example, generally speaking, I can't talk about the problems in South Asian communities because I know there's somebody out there who's going to use that like, see, even brown people think brown people suck. And we're like, we want to be able to talk about this in a place where it won't be misconstrued. And it's almost cathartic, you know, like a little messed up, you know, safe to hate. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like a license to hate, really. And one of the biggest uh, unexpected uh, outcomes of doing the show is pretty much every single month without fail, every month after the show, somebody from the audience will come out to me and it's people from all different backgrounds, right? Not just white people who are watching Asians take on Hispanics and like go all, all at it. But people from all backgrounds come and be like, I didn't realize this, but those, that country and their rivals are exactly like my country and my rivals. I'm like, yes, we're all the same. Turns out everybody, or like every country on the planet is homophobic and has a problem with black people. That's what we've realized from this show. You know what I mean? like, And and I I do this joke as part of the setup to it. It's just like, you know, racism outside of North America is a lot of nuance to it. You know, here it's like North America is just basically dark skin. Around the world, it's like, yes, dark skin, blah, yes. Of course, we all hate dark skin, even the dark skin people. But we don't get to talk about it and talk about why and the real, you know, reasons behind it because, you know, it's boring. People's eyes glaze over when we talk about historical injustices and all that. So when you talk about it through jokes, it's a lot more palatable. And for whatever reason, it bur- it borrows through. It, it really gets through to people. Like uh, one of my, the most popular videos that I have on the channel for Your Hood's a Joke It's one of the only monetized comedy channels in Canada, first of all. We get millions of views and all that. But our battles between India and China are like the ones that are the most charged because real world, they have a lot of competition right now. But also, when you take India versus China, it's a lot of jokes about how both countries mistreat the same groups of people. You know, it's Muslims and women, usually. Mm-hmm. And these two countries think they're so different, but their internal workings are very, very identical. And you can transplant that to the whole planet, really. And so that's kind of re- been the real reason behind its success is because the truths are uncomfortable, but the jokes are funny. And that's where I like to live, where I'm like, I'm trying to get you to understand something that I am not able to communicate to you with my normal, you know, luxury yeah. fucking patronizing voice. But if I turn it into a roast, suddenly be like, ha! yeah, that is weird. How you guys, oh, wait, we do that too, shit.
0: It's, <laughs> it's almost like the psychological phenomenon of if you sit beside a person in school you can sit beside this person for five years and i have nothing to talk about nothing in mm. common until this one person's like i fucking hate that dude and you go oh my god i hate him too
1: exactly it's exactly it's pretty much like that you know and uh, comedy jokes are a great way it's a cliche but they're a great way to approach you know, topics like this
0: it is you know it is. and that's
1: kind of where I like to live that's where I like to uh, spend most of my time is uh, areas of the of the comedy world that are that are like difficult or untouched and see if we can find a fun way of making it work you know
0: and, and from a production point of view how do you go about producing the franchises of your hood's a joke uh,
1: it's a, I pretty much have certain uh, guidelines you know the show structure uh you know how it should go blah 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 and that's from like a decade of doing this i basically tell people these are all the mistakes i made you don't have to make the same mistake you know uh i've been fortunate that all the franchisees around the world like we 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 think in similar ways you know producing comedy it's a muscle it's a very specific type of muscle and it can be very it is very infuriating dealing with comedians 24 7 you know what that's like we're all you're all mentally ill degenerates with no direction in life and we're being and, and now that includes me and i'm trying to put something together it's hurting cats so i've been fortunate that i've been working with people who are themselves in their cities also established and respected and organized and all that and um, the biggest i guess catalyst was the fact that early on uh, in, any, in any show's life cycle, especially if you have a good format, early on, there's always a chance of copycats, of people just stealing the idea, putting a different name on it, and getting bigger. But because it was in 2013 where people really were not going into risky jokes, I first, I didn't have that problem, right? Nobody was trying to put on a racist-ass show. It was pretty much nobody. Nobody wanted to touch it. And the, But the ones who did were true believers in comedy, and we just happened to talk. Uh, the, the, for example, the producers from Japan was um, actually a Canadian guy, jj wackrat He lives out there. He's been uh, he's been uh, helping running the club out there as well. But he was part of the original crew. It's a very new scene in Asia, like from Tokyo, Bangkok, Shanghai. I think Shanghai is done now, thanks China. But uh, they approached me. They were actually in Toronto one random month, and they're like, "Hey, why don't we come to a show?" They watched it. They loved it. They were already running Rose Petal Tokyo out there. They're like, "Why well, don't we also do this?" And turns out, people in Japan also love this concept because they hate China and Korea and et cetera, et cetera, and whatnot. So it became the most requested English language show in Tokyo.
0: Also, they perform in English, even in, in English, those shows.
1: Yes. In English, absolutely. Mm. Um, it is an English show out there. You know, stand-up comedy is a Western art out there, uh, so they kind of like approach it like that. And then that same year, I was able to expand it to the comedy store in LA at New York Comedy Club in New York, obviously. And so once I got it into these like marquee places, it made more sense for people to work with me and then be part of this network where you now have access to like, if you go to all these cities, you can just name drop us and get on the biggest stages in that respective city. So it made more sense for people to work with us franchise with the franchise instead of like spinning off and just doing like a show nobody knew of because when you do your Hood the Joke you can say you did the same show as Russell Peters has done as Tony Hinchcliffe as a bunch of other people who are now quite famous I mean Russell was has been for a long time so the franchising part of it was like a bit of a uh, I don't know if you read books like Outliers and Black Swan and stuff like that but I had just happened to start the show at a time when a lot of the risks of starting a new franchise were absent due to external factors in this case cool. nobody wanted to touch a show about racism much
0: (laughs) i love that i love that um okay so so far what we've learned in this interview is that your number one advice for starting um comedians and who want to be producers is that they just have to get a day job and really not worried about paying their bills if they want to be committed to their art Mm -hmm. And that if they want to succeed as producers, they need to treat it as a business and know that for the first few years, they need to put money up front without expecting it in return. And if they break even, that's just, that's good enough. Great. Yeah, that's great. And that if they would like to sponsor, uh, find sponsors or or pitch it to potential uh, collaborators, that the angle that they need to aim for is we have the same audience correct okay um and i guess the last takeaway here is that if if you want to work on an international franchise the way to do it is not alone is you have to find
1: yeah you gotta you know in this business you have to it's a Kind of like uh counterintuitive but in stand-up comedy it's l- more like rap as opposed to rock rappers are solo artists as are stand-up comedians you know as opposed to bands that work together right so it's uh we, you're in competition with each other at all times so finding collaborators can be tricky right you know we absolutely if you don't have that muscle it's going to be very difficult if you don't know how to work with other people if you don't know how to judge whether somebody is trying to take advantage of you, or if somebody, you know, there's like a lot of these soft skills that you need to have if you want to be a producer. So I highly recommend that if you can just do comedy, just do that. Yeah. Producing shows it requires a more than jokes, a lot more than jokes. It unfortunately it requires soft skills that are don't come naturally to people who like stand up, myself included. Uh, you know, I have a background in business and sales. So I have those hard skills, but I am the one who gets in my way most of the time because my 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 mind is too chaotic, and I have to find ways to hack my brain. Like every all the advice I gave out, I have to keep constantly giving to myself. Like I yeah. remember, it's okay to do X, Y, Z. So I fully appreciate if you know if you're, if somebody's trying to produce and they're banging against the wall, and often they're banging the wall. The wall is just them, but just remember that. If you're going to do this, you have to steal yourself in terms of the finances of it. So get some other form of income and you have to find a way to work with others because you can't do this alone. You really can't. If you want to franchise things, don't rush into it. You know the saying, hire slow, but fire fast. Mm -hmm. If you want to collaborate with somebody... I see this happen all the time. People will meet at an open mic or a show. They have a conversation for a couple hours and they think they're jamming and they're vibing. Oh, we should work together. Let's start a TikTok group. Let's start this. And then six months later, they're
0: enemies for life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How many times have you seen this?
0: I've seen this way too much. I know.
1: This is why I say like hire slow fire fast. In this case, collaborate slow. Take time to get to know somebody. I do that all the time. I don't work with somebody unless I've known them for like months, if not over a year. Mm -hmm. like I take time like okay you're funny but I want to see how you react to adversity how you react to deadlines you know how you react to some things not going your way and once I've seen that for a while I watch other people produce then I start to work with it like hey you want to collab on something because I've seen you go through the frustrating process that is producing stand-up comedy and I see you're still doing it I see you improving month over month and I know what that's like Mm -hmm. so I know that we're simpatico there so yeah Um...
0: I guess my last question in this theme would be mm. um, is there any source of um, um, reference or education that you would recommend to people, either a special, a, a, a book, or something that you think helped to you hone your skills?
1: You know, a lot of what I learned, I learned at various jobs I had. So I'm not really like, I, I, I dropped out of business school. Uh, and I shouldn't have been in business school because up until high school, all of my education was in like science, like biology and shit. Mostly I was basically on the track for med school and the last second I decided to go to business school and then I dropped out of that. Right. So unfortunately I don't really have a lot of books, a lot of like stuff, like everything I learned, I learned like the hard way I learned Mm -hmm. from picking picking up the phone. I've done telemarketing, cold calls. I've done like every shitty job you can imagine, that is a cliche in the montage of like an early 90s movies, like, oh, this blah, blah, blah. And that's why they became the Joker. I've done all those things. <laughs> so that's how I learned. So the only book I read regularly, and this is such a cliche, is The Art of War. That's the only book I've read that on a regular basis that I always get something out of it because it's interpreted, you know. And to be honest, the answer comes down to be prepared. That's yeah. really what it comes down to always be like, you never know what's going to happen. So the best you can do is improve your odds by being ready. And that is so tedious. I have to tell you, like, but it works. It has worked in my favor because I am ready for anybody at any time to be like, hey, we're thinking of making a show. You got any scripts? I'm like, what do you want? You want long form? You want good <laughs> I've been writing these for nobody for years, bro. You know, you have to be able to do that in the dark when nobody's looking for it. You know, I'm ready. If somebody wants to put on a show tomorrow, I'm like, listen, I've got my Adobe subscription. I've got my poster templates we can do this in 30 minutes if you want but to do all that you have to spend all this time non-glamorous work just like setting up the prep work for your would-be company right so like things like that unfortunately i'm sure they teach that in business school and i'm sure there's lots of great books on it but a lot of it i think you would just learn from trying to do better in a work environment because like much like you know, we say we send children to school, not just to learn about math and science, but to learn how to talk to each other. It's kind of like that. How to
0: cooperate.
1: Exactly. Just how to be with other people. I think if you, not to be like super Julia Roberts, 1999, but just like absorb from the universe, you know, wherever you are, learn. If if you hate your shitty day job, that's fine. But just absorb how people are interacting with each other. Look at if you're in a sales job, for example, look at what made somebody buy something. Even if you're not the one who sold it to them, just observe successful salespeople and try to see if you can use that in your your life in other ways. That's literally how I learned. It's just from watching people who do it well and be like, what did that person do different that that person didn't, which is why they're successful and how can I adapt that? So... No books for me, sorry. No book recommendations.
0: Unless the Art trying. of War is a book recommendation. Yes. I'll take the it. The Art of
1: War, yeah. The Art of I'll War, take
0: it. The Surprisingly War. enough, I have never read this. So I'm going to add that to my list now because I want to I wanna see if I can get inside your head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: there's the, the Art of War, uh, I'm going to tell you. It's just gonna, it's going to make you so suspicious of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Because, like, when somebody first recommended to me when I was a kid, like, oh, it's a 3,000-year-old book about warfare strategy. You can apply it to business, blah, blah, blah. I read the thing. I'm like, okay, the man has two pieces of advice. Be prepared and lie to everybody. Those are the only things he basically says. It's like, what is the art of war? Deception. That's it. It's like, they shouldn't know what you're about. That way you can attack and defend, however. So, and then also be ready. That's basically what it comes down to
0: it's funny because um, if the art of war is supposed to make me suspicious of everybody, it's just going to do the same thing that the true crime podcast. Yes, exactly. Cause, Cause whenever I'm in the subway and I'm listening to true crime, I, I wish I could have a mirror pointing at my face so that I could be a little more self-aware because mm. this is the face I'm making at people. <laughs> yeah. You know, I see people sitting down and I'm like, one in five of us is a serial killer is it <laughs> yeah
1: oh hell yeah oh man yeah true crime that's one thing i avoid because like yeah. i already know people are fucked up i don't need i don't need more i don't need visual i just can't i just
0: can't <laughs> okay so um thank you so much for this interview uh Dinesh. Yeah, this yeah. was so enlightening if uh, somebody just met you and they want to keep up with you, where do they find you?
1: Uh, my socials are Terror Suspect across the board. You know, Instagram, Twitter, all that, TikTok, Terror Suspect. Um, uh, people probably can find me in the comment sections of Instagram meme pages arguing. I'm doing that right now. <laughs> I'm on Six Buzz. I'm on Puberty right now arguing about the missing subway, uh, subway, the submersible, the Titanic tourists at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, Celine Dion's gonna make so much royalty from this thing. <laughs> like, her, my heart will go on is number one again. So, and uh, where else can they find me? Yeah, and I do shows. I have uh, monthly shows. I have five shows uh, a month, Fridays and Saturdays at Yuck Yucks in Toronto and Comedy Bar in Toronto on Bloor Street. Uh, you know, aside from roast battles, I also put on regular stand up shows like uh, uh, my, uh, there's a show called Melting Pot, which is a diverse comedy showcase at yuck yucks and then toronto comedy all stars my original show
0: happens every month at the comedy
1: bar and yeah that's pretty much where people can find me
0: awesome um all right well thank you so much danesh and do you have any upcoming shows that you would like to plug
1: oh always i'm booked till december 2024 so people can always check out my socials for upcoming shows I don't know when you're airing this, but we're doing a Canada Day, Canada Day special for Your Hood the Joke, June 30th, Friday, mm-hmm. 10.30 p.m. at Yok downtown. We're going to do all kinds of Canada-themed roasts. We're doing Canada versus China, the roasts of America. We're doing a bunch of provincial battles and stuff, so it'll be a fun time, and you'll probably learn some things for your citizenship test. So.
0: Amazing. I wish I learned that before. And this was the episode. You've made it to the end. You listened to my voice this whole time and it didn't drive you crazy. Congratulations. Thank you so much for supporting me. I truly appreciate it. If it wasn't for you, I would be talking to myself. So, (laughs) thank you. If you'd like to stay up to date with my weekly episodes and occasional videos, please follow me on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, at Laura Faridos. If you'd like to stay up to date with my work besides the show, please go ahead and sign up for my monthly newsletter. There I summarize key takeaways from my episodes, I share links to any other content I produce, and I also include tickets to comedy shows, so that's always nice. Finally, if you'd like to take an extra step and support the making of the show, please consider making a one-time donation, buying my merch or signing up for my Patreon for just $2 a month. You get all my content ad-free, full length, and sometimes even the behind-the-scenes process. I'm looking at you, media production students. You like the show? huh? Do you? Do you? You like the show? Prove it. Give me your money. Pay me cash. Dollars. I want dollars. This has been a public service announcement. See you in the next episode. Ciao, ciao. So